I come to you today, my brothers and sisters, in the spirit of appreciation, not only for our opportunity to gather again in the setting of religious freedom and in appreciation for the devotion of the faithful saints in the church as one who has urged you to lengthen your stride and who continues urging you to do so, I want to thank you for your responses. Many have done and have done much to beautify their homes and their yards. Many others have followed the counsel to have their own gardens whenever it is possible so that we do not lose contact with the soil and so that we can have the security of being able to, to providing at least some of our food and necessities. Grow all the food that you can possibly do so on your own property if water is available. Berry bushes, grapevines, fruit trees, they're most desirable. Plant them if your climate is right for their growth. Grow vegetables and eat them from your own yard, even those residing in apartments or condominiums. They generally can grow a little food in their pots and planters. As I have previously said, most members of the church are aware of our intense interest in missionary work in the church and it appeals we have made in and the appeals we have made in many lands for the rededication to preaching the gospel and preparing missionaries to carry the good news to the restoration to the people everywhere i feel the same sense of urgency about temple work for the dead as i do about the missionary work for the living since they are basically one and the same I have told my brethren of the general authorities that this work for the dead is constantly on my mind. The First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve recently gave careful consideration as to how we can lengthen our stride in this tremendously important responsibility. We announce a twofold emphasis. First, all members should write a personal history and participate in a family organization. Also, we want to emphasize again the place squarely and place squarely upon their shoulders of these individuals and families the obligation to complete the four-generation program. Families may extend their pedigree beyond the four generations if desired. Secondly, we are introducing a church-wide program of extracting names from genealogical records. Church members may now render second-mile service through participating in this regard. In extracting these names in this program, supervised by the priesthood leaders at the local level, where you will receive further details. On the bookshelves in my own office, in my home, there are 33 large 
well-filled journal books. In my journal, a year for each book, I have written daily and filled in this library. It records the trips to many parts and the nations and all the world, and all around the world, and meetings held, people contacted, marriages performed, and all things of interest to my family, and I hope someday to the church. I urge all of the people of this church to give serious attention to their family history, to encourage their parents and grandparents to write their journal and let no family go into eternity without having left their memoirs for their children, their grandchildren, and their posterity. This is a duty and a responsibility, and I urge every person to start the children out writing a personal history and journal. In the Reader's Digest for April 1978 is an article which can be detached from the magazine. The title of it is, Can You Have a Happier Family Life? and describes four qualities many parents miss in their family lives. And it offers a way to measure your family by these qualities and suggests a general plan for a happier family life and reports a specific example of a plan of action. This is the first in a series of four such articles in the Digest this year. I commend it to all members and non-members of the church. When a high national official visited us recently, he said, the family is so critical. It is so fundamental to the strength of our civilization, a fact that seems to be forgotten. It is so terribly important. It is our chief source of moral strength our chief source of physical and emotional health. It is our chief source of protection against adversity. It is the only institution that guarantees an environment which will ensure the perpetuation of the principles and concepts that have made us strong. I remember a witness, he said, that was testifying before a congregational committee about the family, and he said, before you fool around with the family, you'd better realize that all known human societies during the recorded history of the world um, of mankind have all ended up with a family organization for the rearing and training of children. Before you try to get rid of it, you'd better find out why all civilizations in history have clung to it. I think your, children, your church's emphasis on it has been truly extraordinary. The gospel has been a family affair. By continuing and committing ourselves to having the regular and inspirational family home evening, and by carefully planning the content of that evening, we're sending a signal to our children, which they will remember forevermore. When thus we give our children and 
of our own time we are giving of our presence a gift that is always noticed. The home evening manual is replete with good suggestions, but it should never be replace inspired parental development with regard to what should be done in a particular evening to meet particular needs. If we will feed our families from the gospel garden at home, then what they get from church meetings can be a rich supplement. But not only, but uh, not only that diet, that will be a great new diet for them. A home is the seed bed of saints. There are not enough good homes. Children still come to some homes where they will be abused, not loved, and not taught the truth. We are greatly concerned with the fact that the press continues to report many cases of child abuse. We are much concerned that there would be a single parent that would inflict damages on a child. The Lord loved little children, and he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Let no Latter-day Saint parent ever be guilty of the heinous crime of abusing one of Christ's little ones. The latest United States government statistics show that the divorce epidemic is still in full swing and is even growing. There were more than a million divorces or annulments in 1975, the highest number thus far on record. Last year, there was almost one divorce for every two marriages, and last year, there were twice as many divorces as in 1966 and almost three times the number in 1950. And there were probably more than a million children under 18 involved in these family breakups for whom the emotional and other adverse consequences of wrecked marriages may have been even more serious than for the adults themselves. There may be some who would disregard this and ignore the important things, yet we feel that almost everyone who stops to think of this and weigh it will conclude that when the home is destroyed, the nation goes to pieces. There can be no question about this, and all historians or those who have followed a historical line of thought have come to that same conclusion. We have the lingering ominous suspicion that the proponents of many programs pay little attention, if any, to the sanctity of the home and the family. The thing which greatly concerns us is the spiritual and moral and emotional health of the family members from childhood through youth and adulthood. During 1974, over one million unborn children are said to have lost their lives through induced abortions in the United States. This is an explosive increase in the last few years. We reaffirm our announced opposition to abortion 
in all but the most extreme needs. I want to express my appreciation for the wonderful women of the church. We love the women of our church. We love them as deeply as our own wives, our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, and our friends. Someday when the whole story of this and previous dispensations is told, it will be filled with courageous stories of our women, of their wisdom, their devotion, their courage, for one senses that perhaps just as women were the first at the sepulcher of the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection, that our righteous women have, no, have so often been instinctively sensitive to things of eternal consequence. We recognize, as one man has wisely said, that while we speak of the impact of one's mother's tongue with a lasting effect upon us, it is our mother's love which touches us everlastingly and so deeply. We worry, therefore, conversely, uh, over these trends which would reduce the mother's love in our world. God has placed women at the very headwaters of the human stream. So much of what our men and our institutions seek to do downstream in the lives of erring individuals is done to compensate for early failures. Likewise, so much of life's later rejoicing is a reflection of a woman's work well done at the headwaters of the home. It was Goethe who said, the eternal in women drains us, draws us out. A good woman, as the scriptures tell us, is the glory of the man. The scriptures remind us that women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken. Women also have a claim on their husbands for respect, fidelity, and thoughtfulness, for in that subtle, sweet relationship that should obtain between men and women, there is partnership with the priesthood. The delight and marvel in the in the appropriate development and expressions of our sisters' many talents, surely the church's educational effort in behalf of its women is a sermon in itself. We prepare more than any other people, perhaps more than, in, than any other people of like size, we are deeply committed to the development of the skills and talents of our sisters for we believe our educational program is not simply education for this world, but involves an education for all eternity. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has sponsored the advancement of women from its very outset. It was the prophet Joseph Smith who set forth the ideals for womanhood. He advocated liberally for women in the purest sense of the word and he gave them liberty to fully express themselves as mothers, as nurses to the sick, as proponents of high community ideals and of protectors of good morals. 
What more can any woman want for herself? What more could any man want for his wife? What more could any man want than to match that standard in his own conduct? The Prophet Joseph gave us the Relief Society organization to advance these high purposes for Latter-day Saint women that, that society today is the worldwide movement holding membership in national and world organizations for the advancement of women. Finally, when we sing that doctrinal hymn, an anthem of affection, O oh my Father, we get a sense of the ultimate in maternal modesty of the un the restrained queenly elegant elegance of our heavenly mother and knowing how profoundly our mortal mothers have shaped us here do we suppose her influence on us any as individuals to be less if any as we live and, and to, as we return here my beloved brothers and sisters God lives and I bear testimony of it. Jesus Christ lives, and he is the author of the true way of life and salvation. This is the message of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is the most important message in the world today. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was chosen by the Father as the Savior of this world. His coming was foretold centuries before his birth upon this earth. It was seen in vision by Adam and Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lehi, Nephi, King Benjamin, Alma, Samuel, and many others, including Mary, his eternal mother. A modern prophet, the late Elder James E. Talmadge of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, declared who Jesus, had, who he really was. The solemn testimonies of millions of dead and millions of living unite in proclaiming him as divine, the son of the living God, the redeemer and the savior of the human race, the eternal judge of the souls of men, the chosen and anointed of the Father, in short, the Christ. Jesus Christ was and is Jehovah, the God of Adam and Noah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel and the God of, at whose instance the prophets of the ages have spoken, the God of all nations, and he who shall yet reign on earth as King of kings and Lord of hosts. What was the purpose of Christ's mission in life? God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. <laughs> Male and female created he them. Man created in the image of God was placed on the earth to experience mortal life and an intermediate state between premortal life and immortality. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit. They became mortal. 
Consequently, they and all of their descendants became subject to both mortal and spiritual death. <coughs> the separation of body and spirit, and uh, spiritual death, the separation of the spirit from the presence of God, and death as pertaining to the things of the spirit. In order for Adam to, bray, to reign, to regain his original state, to be in the presence of God, an atonement for this disobedience was necessary in God's divine plan. Provision was made for a Redeemer to break the bonds of death and through the resurrection make possible the reunion of the spirits and bodies of all persons who had dwelt upon the earth. Jesus of Nazareth was the one who, before, he, well, the, before the world was created, was chosen to come to earth to perform this service, to conquer mortal death. This voluntary action would atone for the fall of Adam, he and Eve, and permit the spirit of man to recover his body, thereby reuniting body and spirit. Jesus Christ has influenced humanity more than anyone else who ever lived. Born in a manger of an earthly mother and a heavenly father, he lived on earth for 33 years. He spent 30 of those years preparing for the life's mission and his ministry. Then he traveled to the River Jordan to be baptized by immersion by his cousin John, called the Baptist. By participating in this symbolic ordinance, he demonstrated to all that baptism is the door into this church from heaven. His father acknowledged the important occasion, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. For the next three years, the Savior served mankind. He healed the sick, re restored sight to the blind, cast out evil spirits, restored life to the dead, provided comfort to the oppressed, spread the good news of the gospel of love, testified of the Father, taught the eternal plan of salvation and lay the groundwork for an organization that would provide for the salvation of man. His church, this church, was the church and uh, was not, it was not the church of John the Baptist. It was neither the church of Peter nor of Paul nor of any other of the men on the earth. It was Christ's own church he was its head. That Christ established a church is well documented in the New Testament. In Ephesians, we're told that the church of Jesus Christ was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The Savior, speaking to Peter, said, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shalt be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
In his church, Christ selected 12 apostles and a council of 70. And having endowed them with authority, he sent them forth to preach. That the Father has acknowledged his Son to the multitudes of people gathered around the temple at the approach of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was introduced again by his Father who said, Behold, my beloved Son, I am well pleased in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, he took his beloved apostles, Peter, James, and John, with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. It is couched in words like this. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And in our own dispensation there came the blessed experience of the prophet Joseph Smith, and, he, and we have his testimony concerning it. And after an extended vision, he said, in which he, was, he saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air, he said. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. And this was another testimony of the actuality and the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I bear witness again and again and again of the divinity of the, that personage, Jesus Christ, who came to the prophet Joseph Smith, who came to the Nephites. I bear testimony to this, the divinity of this cause, the truth of the church, the divinity of its ordinances, the importance of the celestial life in everyone's life. And I bear this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our hearts have been touched this afternoon by the beautiful singing of these precious primary boys and girls. All who participated here have the opportunity to assemble with others of similar age each week in the meetings of the primary. But there are other boys and girls equally as precious and choice.
who are not so fortunate. I remember that some years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Australia mission, and in company with the mission president, flew to Darwin, there to break ground for that city's first Latter-day Saint Chapel. En route, however, the plane touched down at a small mining community called Mount Isa, and there by the modest terminal, we were met by a beautiful mother and her two children of primary age. She introduced herself to us as Judith Loudon and mentioned that she and her children were the only members of the church in the entire town. She said that her husband, Richard, was not a member. Right then and there, we held a meeting, and I emphasized to the mother the importance of home primary. I told her that when I returned to headquarters, I would arrange for materials pertaining to the home primary to be sent to her. We received a commitment to meet, to pray, to persevere in faith. When I did return home, I enlisted the help of then-President Laverne Parmley, and the materials for the home primary were sent to Australia, along with a complimentary subscription to the children's friend. Years passed, and again I found myself in Brisbane, Australia, speaking to the priesthood leadership of a state quarterly conference. I happened to mention to the priesthood leaders the plight of that good woman and her children, and then made the comment, I wonder if I'll ever know whether or not that home primary succeeded. Oh, how I would like to meet the non-member husband of such a choice woman and the father of such lovely children. A hand was raised in the rear, and a person stood and said, Elder Monson, my name is Richard Loudon. I am the husband of that good woman and the father of those choice children. Prayer and primary brought me into the church. Again this last January, prayer was uppermost in my mind as I stood at beautiful Palermo Park in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I felt I was on sacred ground, for it was here on Christmas Day in 1925 that Elder Melvin J. Ballard dedicated all of South America for the preaching of the gospel. What a fulfillment to an inspired prayer is evidenced today by the spectacular growth of the Church in South America. In that park is also a statue of George Washington, the father of the United States. I looked at that statue, and I thought of another place where prayer was paramount even Valley Forge. For it was at Valley Forge that Washington led his badly battered, ill-fed, and scantily clad troops for winter quarters. Today, at Valley Forge, there has been erected an heroic monument of George Washington. He is depicted not astride a charging horse, nor overlooking a battlefield of glory, but rather kneeling in humble prayer. And when you look at that statue, you have a greater appreciation of the meaning of the words, a man stands tallest when he is upon his knees. Men and women of character, integrity, and purpose have always appreciated a power higher than oneself, 
and have sought to be guided by that power. It has always been so, and so it shall always be. In the very beginning, Father Adam was commanded, Call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Adam prayed, Abraham prayed, Isaac prayed, Moses prayed, and so did every prophet pray to that God from whence cameth his strength. Like the sands going through an hourglass, generations of mankind were born, lived, then died. At long last came that glorious event for which prophets prayed, psalmists sang, martyrs died, and all mankind hoped. The birth of the babe in Bethlehem was an event transcendent in its beauty and singular in its significance. Jesus of Nazareth brought prophecy to fulfillment. He cleansed lepers. He opened eyes. He penetrated hearts. He renewed life. He taught truth. He saved all. And in so doing, he honored his Father and set for you and me an example worthy of all emulation. More than any prophet or leader, he taught us how to pray. Who of us can fail to remember the majesty of that prayer in Gethsemane when he said, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then the instruction, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And we can be benefited by his counsel when he said, When thou prayest, do not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they might be seen of men. But when thou prayest, pray unto thy Father in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. That inspired counsel has brought to troubled hearts the peace for which they fervently hope and earnestly seek. Unfortunately, honor, praise, abundance lead men to the false security of self-assurance and the abandonment of the inclination to pray. Conversely, trial, tribulation, sickness, death, crumble the castles of men's pride and bring them to their knees to seek power from a source higher than themselves. I suppose that more prayers were offered during World War II than at any other time in the history of this old world. Who can calculate the concern of mothers, wives, children, as daily they prayed for the well-being of sons and husbands and fathers many miles away and locked in mortal combat. Prayers are heard and prayers are answered. Heartwarming is the account of the American mother who prayed fervently for her son as the ship on which he served sailed into that bloody cauldron known as the Pacific Theater of War. 
Every morning as she would arise from bended knee in her prayer, she would then take her place as a volunteer on the production line, which became a lifeline to men in battle. Could it be that a mother's handiwork could somehow affect the life of a loved one? All who knew her and her family cherished the account of her sailor son, Elgin Staples. His ship went down off Guadalcanal, and Staples was swept overboard. But he survived because of a life belt, which proved on later examination to have been inspected, packed, and stamped back home in Akron, Ohio, by his own mother. I know not by what methods rare, but this I know, God answers prayer. I know that he has given his word that tells me prayer is always heard and will be answered soon or late, and so I pray and calmly wait. Well might the younger generation ask the question, but what about today? Does God still answer prayers today? Does he really hear? I would promptly reply, Our Heavenly Father provided no expiration date on his instruction to pray. As we draw close to him, he will draw close to us. Frequently, however, prayers are not answered when bands are playing and flags are waving. Generally, the miracles of our Heavenly Father are performed in a very quiet and normal fashion. A long time ago, I was assigned to the Grand Junction, Colorado State Quarterly Conference. And while there, the state president asked if I would meet with a grieving mother and father whose son had announced that he was going to return home from the mission field, although he had been there but a week. After the conference throng had departed, we sought out a quiet place, and there mother and father, stake president and I, knelt in prayer. As I offered that prayer, I could hear the muffled sobs of a grieving mother and a disappointed father. And after we arose from our knees, the father looked at me and said, I don't see how our Heavenly Father could possibly alter my son's determination to return home. I don't know why it is, but now for the first time in my life that I have really tried to live the commandments, it seems as though my prayers are not answered. I said to him, where is your son serving? He said, in Dusseldorf, Germany. I put one arm around mother and another arm around father, and I said to them, my dear brother and sister, your prayers are already being answered. Today there are 28 state quarterly conferences being attended by general authorities, and I received the assignment to your stake. Of all the general authorities, I am the only one who has the assignment to speak to the missionaries in Dusseldorf, Germany, this very Thursday. Their plea had been heard. And that Thursday I met with their son, and I told him of the concern which his parents had for them and for him. Another prayer was offered. 
A blessing was provided. Of course he remained and filled an honorable mission. More years went by, and again I returned to Grand Junction, Colorado Stake, and again I met the same mother and father. Still, father had not qualified to take mother and the children to the Holy Temple. I emphasized to them that if they would fervently pray, the way would be opened up for those eternal temple blessings to be theirs, and they could be a forever family. I indicated that I would be pleased to officiate the night they came to the temple. Mother pleaded, father strived, children urged, and they all prayed. What was the result? Let me share with you a letter which their tiny son, Todd, placed under the pillow of his father on Father's Day morning. The boy is quite a psychologist and a budding journalist. He said, Dad, I love you for what you are and not for what you aren't. Why don't you stop smoking? Millions of people have. Why can't you? It's harmful to your health, to your lungs, your heart. If you can't keep the word of wisdom, you can't go to heaven with me and Skip and Brad and Mark and Jeff and Jeannie and Pam and their families. Us kids keep the word of wisdom. Why can't you? You're stronger and you're a man. Dad, I want to see you in heaven. We all do. We want to be a whole family in heaven, not a half a one. And Dad, you and Mom ought to get two old bikes and start riding around the park every night. You're probably laughing right now, but I wouldn't be. You laugh at those old people jogging around the park and riding bikes and walking, but they're going to outlive you because they're exercising their lungs and their hearts and their muscles. They're going to have the last laugh. Come on, Dad. Be a good guy. Don't smoke or drink or anything else against our religion. We want you at our graduation. If you do quit smoking and do good stuff like us, you and Mom can go with Brother Monson and get married and sealed to us in the temple. Come on, Dad. Mom and us kids are just waiting for you. We want to live with you forever. We love you. You're the greatest dad. Love, Todd. And then he wrote, P.S. And if the rest of us wrote one of these, they'd say the same thing. <laughs> he couldn't quit. He then wrote P.P.S. <laughs> Mr. Newton has quit smoking. So can you. You're closer to God than Mr. Newton. <laughs> That plea, that prayer of faith, was heard and answered. A night that I shall ever treasure and long remember was when that family assembled in the ceiling room of the temple which graces this square. Mother was there, father was there, every child was there, all dressed in white, and sacred eternal ordinances were performed. The memorable evening was brought to a close by a humble, kneeling prayer. Today, I would hope that all of us would remember that prayer is the soul's sincere desire, uttered or unexpressed, 
The motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer thyself hast trod. Lord, teach us how to pray. He has taught us how to pray. May we learn well that lesson and live it eternally would be my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A few months ago, word reached some of our missionaries in a remote South Pacific island that I would soon be visiting there for two or three days. When I arrived, the missionaries were waiting anxiously to share with me some anti-Mormon literature that was being circulated in their area. They were disturbed by the accusations and were eager to plan retaliation. The elders sat on the edge of their chairs as I read the slander and false declarations issued by a minister who apparently felt threatened by their presence and successes. As I read the pamphlet containing the malicious and ridiculous statements, I actually smiled, much to the surprise of my young associates. When I finished, they asked, What do we do now? How can we best counteract such lies? I answered to the author of these words, We do nothing. We have no time for contention. We only have time to be about our Father's business. Contend with no man. Conduct yourselves as gentlemen with calmness and conviction, and I promise you success. Perhaps a formula for these missionaries and all of us to follow can be found in Helaman chapter 5, verse 30 of the Book of Mormon. And it came to pass when they heard this voice and beheld that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper and it did pierce even to the very soul. There has never been a time when it is more important for us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to take a stand, remain firm in our convictions, and conduct ourselves wisely under all circumstances. We must not be manipulated or enraged by those who subtly foster contention over issues of the day. When issues are in contradiction to the laws of God, the Church must take a stand and state its position. We have done this in the past and will continue to do so in the future when basic moral principles are attacked. There are those in our society who would promote misconduct and immoral programs for financial gain and popularity. When others disagree with our stand, we should not argue, retaliate in kind, or contend with them. We can maintain proper relationships and avoid the frustrations of strife if we wisely apply our time and energies. Ours is to conscientiously avoid being abrasive in our presentations and declarations. We need constantly to remind ourselves that when we are unable to change the conduct of others, we will go about the task of properly governing ourselves. 
Certain people and organizations are trying to provoke us into contention with slander, innuendos, and improper classifications. How unwise we are in today's society to allow ourselves to become irritated, dismayed, or offended because others seem to enjoy the role of misstating our position or involvement. Our principles or standards will not be less than they are because of the statements of the contentious. Ours is to explain our position through reason, friendly persuasion, and accurate facts. Ours is to stand firm and unyielding on the moral issues of the day and the eternal principles of the gospel, but to contend with no man or organization. Contention builds walls and puts up barriers. Love opens doors. Ours is to teach and be heard. Ours is not only to avoid contention, but to see that such things are done away. For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger, one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. We need to be reminded that contention is a striving against one another, especially in controversy or argument. It is to struggle, fight, battle, quarrel, or dispute. Contention never was and never will be an ally of progress. Our loyalty will never be measured by our participation in controversy. Some misunderstand the realm, the scope, and the dangers of contention. Too many of us are inclined to declare, Who, me? I'm not contentious, and I'll fight anyone who says I am. <laughs> there are still those among us who would rather lose a friend than an argument. How important it is to know how to disagree without being disagreeable. It behooves all of us to be in the position to involve ourselves in factual discussions and meaningful study, but never in bitter arguments and contention. No home or heart exists that cannot be hurt through contention. It is sad when children are raised in a contentious home. It is just as sad when an organization has contention as one of the planks of its platform, declared or unannounced. Generally speaking, people who come from non-contentious households find themselves repulsed by those who would make it part of the daily diet. The family as an institution today is beset on all sides. Conflicts within the family are critical and often damaging. Contention puts heavy strain on stability, strength, peace, and unity in the home. There is certainly no time for contention in building a strong family. In place of arguments and friction between family members, ours is to build, listen, and reason together. I recall receiving a written question during a fireside discussion from a 15-year-old girl. She wrote, Is there anything I can do to improve the feelings among members of my family? I am 15 years old and hardly ever look forward to being home. 
everyone just seems to be waiting for me to say the wrong thing so they can cut me down. Another young woman, age 17, was asked why she was living in a city with her sister away from her parents. She replied, because of the hassle back home. I've had all that I can stand. She continued, there's always fighting. I can never remember when it was different. Everyone in the house, especially my parents, take delight in bad-mouthing each other. A few family expressions which cause hurts and lead to contention are, you don't know what you're talking about. Why did you do that stupid thing? Your room is a mess. Why don't you do as I tell you? Almost five centuries ago, a creative genius named Leonardo da Vinci lived and worked in Italy. While we remember him most today for such paintings as the Mona Lisa, he was also a fascinating debater, a polished orator and storyteller of great imagination. One of his fables simply titled The Wolf I would like to share with you. Carefully, warily, the wolf came down out of the forest one night, attracted by the smell of a flock of sheep. With slow steps, he drew near to the sheepfold, placing his feet with the utmost caution so as to not make the slightest sound which might disturb the sleeping dog. But one careless paw stepped on a board. The board creaked and woke the dog. The wolf had to run away unfed and hungry. And so, because of one careless foot, the whole animal suffered." End of quote. There is an area, perhaps insignificant to some, that seems to be gnawing away at the spirituality of Latter-day Saints. The plights of these young ladies bring it to mind. Like the careless paw of the wolf, it is causing untold suffering and depriving many of spiritual growth and family oneness. I speak of arguing. Careless words spoken in anger, disgust, and intolerance, often without thought. How sad it is when family members are driven away from home because of contentious tongues. Stories often reiterate the hate and bitterness caused by contention among neighbors. Some families have been forced to move because of bitter controversy. Going the extra mile, turning the other's cheek, Swallowing one's pride and apologizing are often the only ways in which contention among neighbors can be erased. From the Savior's words, we learn the source of contention, whether it be in the home, in the community, among the leaders, or in the classroom. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend one with another. This means that Satan has power over us only when we let him in. We have agency. We can choose our behavior. As we take a stand against the evils of the day, such as abortion, homosexuality, immorality, alcohol, drugs, dishonesty, intolerance, etc., can we express our beliefs without clenching our fists, raising our voices, and promoting contention? Can we talk about the beneficial principles of the gospel, such as the word of wisdom?
keeping the Sabbath day holy, maintaining personal purity, and the other truths found in the scriptures without making our listeners defensive? This is not easy, but it can be done. Ours is, if you please, to plow our own furrow, plant our own seeds, tend the crops, and reap the harvest. This can best be accomplished not only by plowshares rather than by swords, but by appropriate commitment rather than contention. Let me share with you some suggestions for alleviating contention. One, pray to have the love of God in your heart. Sometimes this is a struggle, but the Spirit of the Lord can soften hard feelings and mellow a callous spirit. Two, learn to control your tongue. There is an old maxim and an excellent one. Think twice before you speak and three times before you act. Number three, don't allow emotions to take over. Rather, reason together. Four, refuse to get embroiled in the same old patterns of argument and confrontation. Five, practice speaking in a soft, calm voice. The peaceful life can best be attained by those who speak, not with a great tumultuous noise, but those who follow the Savior's example and speak with a still voice of perfect mildness. There is no time for contention. We must have the will and discipline in our daily lives to fight contention. I promise the valiant God's help in their efforts to conquer this horrendous foe. Let us cease to contend one with another cease to speak evil one of another. We only have time to be about our Father's business. To these truths I leave my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.